I'm going to be very candid with you. We are living in a computer program reality. Welcome everyone to Simulation Nation, your portal to all things virtual. I'm your host, Johnny Android, and I'm here to keep you informed about all that's happening in the metaverse. We record our episodes live in Ultimates every week. You can join us for free, even if you don't have a VR headset. This is true. Just log into Altspace from your laptop or PC in our event and teleport in. Offer your opinion, question, or whatever else. Just like these five folks. We've got Pixie, we've got Dwindaloo, we've got Ray Ray, and a bunch of others trapped at the back there, Tracy Tran, etc. Today, we are talking to sci-fi author Dave Norman, who happens to freak with these hollowed megabytes of Altspace. He's written a massive, sprawling anthology. That's right. Not, trilo not trilogy, otherwise known as a trilogy, anthology yeah. to cover 10 billion years of history yeah. and starts with Halion Eon, a book we'll dive into today. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm emoji welcome, Dave. Otherwise known as Halion Eon. How would you like to be called? Dave, Halion? Uh, oh, Dave. No, David. Say David do for now. I'll use Halion okay. Eon as my username, but yeah, Dave is fine personally. Okay, great, good. Well, we do have some uh, some fans of your book series, perhaps. Uh, we we'll get into it. Of course, you. I guess the first one is the one that's published, and then we've got you've got uh, four more coming down the track. So you're essentially like the James Cameron of novels. You're writing the. You know, he did all five <laughs> Avatar films. He's got a. You know, half of them in the can. You're the same. Well, yeah, the next Avatar's out soon, isn't it? Or maybe on Friday, I think tomorrow, and or that's right in, in the states, isn't it? Um, but how long was it since the first one? It's about the same. Right. I mean, yes, it's. Uh, oh, right. When was it? It was about 2010, wasn't it? When the uh, first. 2009 was the original. So yeah. yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Exactly. But hopefully, I'll be well, a bit, bit bit quicker with the next one. You know, so hopefully next year for the uh, for the second one in the series. You know, so that's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we'll get into that. all that stuff. And of course, if um, if anyone has any questions or thoughts or anything, use the raise hand option. We'll definitely call on you. Uh, and where we're going to start is the origin story. So we're diving back into uh, Norman, how he became author. And um, the thing that I love about the book is that it's 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 obviously a work of passion, but a lot of science, cosmology, geology. So I'm very curious as to your background and how you came at being a novelist. Okay. Yeah. Well, my professional background is software engineer. Okay. So I am. Um... Uh, I've been a career as a freelance software engineer, mainly uh, so doing contract work, mainly a couple of permanent jobs as well, you know, direct ones with like Kinetic and that in, in the UK. Obviously, I'm based in the UK. Um, so I've done quite a lot of uh, aerospace work mainly. So I've written software that's flying people around in planes. I've been flown by my own wow. software on holiday once, and the captain came around and um, I'd worked on the flight management system for. Uh, Airbus A310 it was back then, um, and I've worked on military systems. Even though I'm a UK citizen, I've got software on US Air Force planes. I've worked on. Wow. Um, you know, systems sounds like rocket science. US Air Force. <laughs> well, it's aerospace science, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> my son, yes, after uh, yeah. my son Toby has just recently graduated um, with in physics, but he's doing space exploration system. Leicester University, which is very much a space university in the UK. Um, so he really is a rocket scientist. You know, he'll be doing, but he's designing spacecraft habitats, and I think he's really interesting. So, um, yeah, which is great, you know. But um, so I'm a software engineer by background, uh, but I've always been interested in uh, space and astronomy. I got very much into astronomy um, ooh, when I was about 10, I think. And then um, uh, in, in my university course, I did a uh, placement with the Royal Greenwich Observatory in England here, which is uh, a, a, a glorious place called Hurstmonceau uh, Castle. So if you can imagine a very traditional castle, four, you know, quad castle with a moat around it. And that mm -hmm. was the, uh, the sort of offices and that. There were other more modern offices there as well. But uh, you could go down to this uh, castle. And uh, and the other fun thing was during in the grounds in the um, in the summer they used to go around and pick up eggs from lots of there was Canada geese and all sorts of uh, birds and that and they used to collect all the eggs put them in the middle of the castle so in the quad in the middle of the castle so they were safe from all the, uh, the visitors and that and you could go into the middle and it'd be like hundreds of little chicks and that running around in the middle of the castle 
Um, and that oh, same place was where they, at the time, they were generating the BBC time pits. So, um, and there's a story that the, uh, one day the gardener was doing some gardening and he put his spade through the cable that went up to the BBC in London and cut off the time pits and that sort of thing as well. So, um, but yeah, that oh, was yeah. a great place to wear. I really enjoyed that summer. So that was wow. good fun. So uh, when I moved down to Torquay, which is where I am in Devon in England, ooh, where are we now? 1985, I think I moved down here. Um, I joined up the local, hello, hello. <laughs> I joined up the local uh, uh, Orbe Astronomical Society um, and uh, was the computing advisor during the 90s. Um, was the uh, eclipse coordinator. In 1999, we had a total solar eclipse that went across the huh? spirited down the southwest of the UK and just across Torquay so I was uh, the coordinator for, oh, for so you cor you coordinated the moon's path along the earth yeah, I, I, uh, I said come on moon get you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> the tilt yeah. of the earth just yeah. right it's quite a task <laughs> yeah it makes it what you can arrange when you got the you know yeah, you got the right contact that's right <laughs> <laughs> so my friends are coming now it's great lovely to see more here Great to see you. Yeah, uh, so um, I became chairman of Torbay Astronomical Society in the year 2000. And for all but three years, I've been chairman since then. So I'm just in my 20th year now. Of that. So I, I love all space stuff. I'm an outdoor and, you know, not just the astronomy, but all the, uh, the actual, the hardware and the technology and all that sort of stuff as well. So I do a lot of lectures at the moment. As I mentioned, I was <laughs> this morning, I was elected president of Torquay uh, yeah. Museum Society. He's not quite so grand as, as Mr. Biden, but um, yeah, so I've, I've got that as well. So I'm chairman of the society so what, and, uh, and yeah, president what is, of another society, which is great. Is the Torquay uh, Society, like, is it, uh, is it historical society or? Yeah, it it's, well, actually, uh, yeah, it started out as Torquay Natural History Society in 1844, okay? And one of the, uh, the main, um, uh, creator of it uh, was a guy called William Pengelly, who was a really good friend of um, Charles Darwin. So and oh, wow. Charles Darwin actually came down to see, to, to to sort of visit the area whilst he was still writing the Origin of Species, and he wow. went to visit um, a famous cave system nearby called Kent's Cavern, um, and uh, he went back and wrote a bit more of his Origin of Species as well. So um, uh, that's all part of it as well. Um, Talking mm. Museum, I actually live literally 100 yards away from it. Um, and uh, there's a strong association as well with Agatha Christie, who I think um, a lot of you know, people know the crime writing um, sector. Um, in fact, mm. they have unique rights on some of her books, apparently, as well. So they sell all the Agatha Christie books in the, in the bookshop there, because she was born in Torquay, so oh, wow. where I'm from. Um, yeah, so uh, I've been doing a lot of that stuff, but... Um, we have lots of lectures and that, you know, it's a learning society and uh, we have some really excellent lectures. But I've been doing, a couple, you know, James Webb and I actually did one yesterday about the uh, the, the Christmas star because it's obviously festive. So, um, yeah, the you know, where the Christmas star um, story comes from, which is basically Matthew 2 in the Bible. And then looking at some of the possible things that there might have been in the sky. Uh, around about that period, which we're not mm. sure when it was, but we had to have a road in the view in that sort of thing. And I was talking about the, how we get the calendar as well, which is another fascinating thing with all the, the Greek, the um, Egyptians mania, and then the Roman Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar, and that Abus are on months, and, um, and all the way we do leap years and things. And uh, Gregory right. the 13th came in at the end as well. Right. So, um, so much, you know, there's so much in the talking yeah. uh, to talk about. There's so much happening in space, particularly at the moment. I mean, you've got this year has been an amazing year. James Webb, uh, well, launched last Christmas Day, but um, mm -hmm. slightly into last year, but um, really performing well. Some absolutely excellent mm -hmm. stuff coming out of James Webb. Um, mm -hmm. And we've had, of course, recently the, the launch of the Artemis One mission, uh, which is, by mm -hmm. all accounts, has gone really, really well. So that was mm -hmm. a, an unmanned launch, but. Um, Hopefully that will pave the way now for uh, Artemis 2 in probably a couple of years' time with crew on board. Yeah. That will be going back to the moon, around the moon for Artemis yeah. 2. And um, and then hopefully a few years after that, Artemis 3 will actually put the 
first uh, person of color and the first woman on the moons. It could be Pixie. <laughs> be Pixie. Um, who has a, uh, has a, a rather fuchsia hue. Color, like a pink color, but never mind. Yeah, they don't say Usha, and we've got an aqua color over there. We've got a whole, whole yeah, spectrum um, of colors Nicole. here. Yeah, yeah. Nicole's oh, you... another great. Uh, um, yeah, uh, you're very much into space and stuff, aren't you, Nicole? Was, uh, yeah. So uh, she's a great, yeah, very, really interesting. Actually, Nicole, let me see this. Nicole was the first person I actually sent a signed copy of Haley and Eon to. So Nicole oh, wow. has a copy, a signed copy. Cool. So, uh, and she was the first nice. person. I've sent a few out. <laughs> I hope you've read it all, right. Nicole. I'll test you later on. <laughs> <laughs> this will, but, we're uh, going to give you a little... Yeah, exa exactly, yeah. Um, but um, if you had anything to add to or, or ask uh, or talk to Dave about, please use the raise hand option. We'll definitely get you. I do have a question, though, you know, because just today I read an article. You, you remember that um, that item... I guess they just call it an unidentified object that came into the solar system a few years ago. The Umamao, I think they call it. Yeah, just right. left yeah, the solar system. Do you, yeah. do you prescribe the theory that that might have been intelligent life trying to contact us, or do you think well, it was just uh, space free? <laughs> I, I mean, personally, well, I, we'll talk about, you know, is there out there, the life out there and that, but um, probably not. I mean, it probably isn't because there are some perfectly. Uh, plausible explanations for some of the slightly odd behavior that it did give us. It did appear to mm. actually slightly accelerate, okay? So from just a purely passive object, it came in on a very, um, you know, very fast hyperbolic orbit, which you don't get in things orbiting. So we could tell from that immediately that it was coming, it came from another star system, or not from our star mm. system anyway. I think we know roughly where it came from, but um, no definitively. Um, yeah, and then um, uh, apparently it did slightly accelerate, um, but it could have been some yeah. outgassing. I mean, it often happens with comets and that. When they get near the sun, if they've got ice on them or something, you'll get mm. outgassing, and that actually is a, a thrust. So uh, mm. it could have been something like that. It was a very strangely shaped object. I mean, we could right. tell from the uh, changes in the variation of the light coming from it that, um, that it was a, you know, we think it's a long object long and relatively thin object so um very strange but um very probably strange. just a, a chunk off some planet um possibly right. in another star system possibly from some collision you'll often get gravitational interactions between bodies if they get near enough um so it's entirely right. possible things can get thrown out of the so the star system entirely um you know that, oh. that happens all the time in fact interstellar space is probably not crowded, but it's you know there are lots of objects probably flying around uh, between stars, yeah. which is quite fascinating, really. So including right. planets, yeah. even entire yeah. planets can be thrown out of star systems if you um, if they interact uh, when the system's forming and that as well. Yeah. So um, well, of course, in your novel though, you you are speculating that there was intelligent life that entered into our solar system and maybe even spawned some life on Earth and things like that. So maybe you yes, could just yeah. um, if we dive into the sort of novel here, maybe you could just give everybody a super brief description of <laughs> the book. Is. Okay, and I say the brief because first... it only takes place over four billion years. So you're going to compress yeah, yeah, that into thirty seconds. Covers four point six billion years, you know. So and then the later ones cover the other five billion altogether. Okay. Actually, start off the first chapter. Um, by the way, the first chapter of each book will be freely available, and it well, the first two are freely available on the internet. Okay, uh, go to halion.com, uh, you can download it as a, as a PDF or a voice version as, um, as an MP3, and also you can follow it. I've actually done a um, on YouTube, you can see it where it will read the story to you, and that. And that's the first two books are available on if you just go to halion.com. But I'll do that for the later ones as well, okay? So the first chapter in the first book, it really looks at the formation of the Earth-Moon system, okay? Now, try, where possible, to follow the real science, and I'm not contradicting any of the... I'm embellishing on the accepted theory, so... But basically, we, we we think in science that um, proto-Earth was hit by uh, perhaps a Mars-sized body called Theia. Um, 
and that the uh, what effectively that threw material out from what then became the earth to then relatively quickly you know over decades or a century coalesced into what we now call the moon now it would have initially formed a lot closer the reason i'm approaching that um from the science fiction point of view and the reason why i wanted to make it it's important to the story is that the twist I have is that it wasn't entirely random and this thing called the Peter or the moon maker which is going around the galaxy creating moons for potentially habitable planets now that is important because we think that we're pretty sure the presence of our moon is one of the things that's allowed life to evolve on earth because if you've got a planet spinning and it doesn't have a moon, its mm. axis can actually shift rather mm. you know, violently. We think this happens with Mars and some of the other planets. Um, uh, if you've got a, a large moon, it acts a bit like having a tether on it, and it keeps mm. the axis much more stable. Um, and then, okay, you can have a tilt, which gives you seasons and things like that. But having a large moon, we, we think, is one of the important um, uh, you know, factors that will help life develop on a planet. So the idea there in this my story is that okay, it wasn't just random. There's this uh, actually a people I don't really talk about much, but they've they're leaving the galaxy, but they create this thing called the accretor and set it going round galaxy over a billion years, <laughs> looking for new star systems forming, looking for a planet that might be in the habitable zone, the right distance from its uh, star, and then going along and and creating a moon around it, so it's what moon maker, and then it can go on, you know, and just leave the thing to um, uh, evolution to to take its course. But you do actually leave a couple of uh, uh, pods of um, early um, early life in that, which um, can be used to seed the planet with its um, intended there. So that's more or less what the first chapter's about, and uh, it's part of an arc which actually will come back right at the end of the five books. I don't talk much more about it there, but it's mentioned a bit later. It's actually a really important feature in the last book. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll come back to that. But the rest of it, we then come up, I go through the talk about the mass extinctions. Um, so starting about 500 and some odd million years ago, I think we've had five major extinctions. And um, so I talk there about, in a book, you always have to have some, tension going on, something, you know, that is causing dramatic, um, you know, catastrophes or whatever, you know, apocalypses. Okay, so we have mass extinctions. Again, I'm putting, so I'm not, you know, not disagreeing with when they were, I'm suggesting a mechanism um, based on dark matter waves coming from outside the galaxy uh, every 50 or million years that can account for the timing of mass extinctions. And um, but you know nobody uses that as an, as a reason for them at the moment. But this is the sci-fi bit coming in, and mm -hmm. so I pick up really. Um, so we all know the dinosaurs; they went 66 million years ago, and uh, no, it was a mass extinction then. But um, I actually treat that as the most recent of these episodes. So uh, and then that's when things pick up because by then life in our universe start to get a bit more sentient can actually start doing something about these dark waves coming through the galaxy so there's a lot going into that and then they develop technologies which gets um it's represented really as a way of doing backup of life so the problem is if you have a mass extinction maybe you've had some intelligent life there life can be wiped out so i sort of propose this way let's say all the the life gets the intelligent life gets together and says we need a way of doing biological backups um of what we think and our life experiences so there's these um things called cars which is basically so if you start off with your mobile phone we're, we're saving more and more of our life experiences mobile phones mm -hmm. right if you imagine they had you know a million times more capacity we could record every moment of what we see um, possibly, even if it had inputs to our brain, we could perhaps record all our thoughts, maybe even our way of thinking and things like that. If you had that mobile phone, you'd die. <laughs> You've got a representation, and if you had the technology, you could create a robot or an avatar or whatever, 
um, and possibly, given all your thoughts and your experiences, it's almost the soul, and you can debate what the soul is, but uh, it's uh, effectively that. It's all your experiences, all your life, uh, that sort of thing. So I talk about these things being recorded, recording the life of not just humans, this is species that were around 60 million years ago. We're, we're newcomers, so it's recording, and we're about to join the club. Uh, I call us an emergent, become an emergent species when uh, mm -hmm. we start to get to know who's out there. Um, so, yeah, I call them cars, um, K-A, um, and uh, these things are out well away from species that they're trying to record because there are ways that the universe can actually blow us to bits. So there are, you know, amaray bursters, uh, you know, asteroid collisions and things like that that can cause, that mm -hmm. can end sentient civilizations. And the idea is that if that happened to any one of them, if you were in this scheme of using cars, then you could basically resurrect them. Um, and it's certainly the, the, the first chapter of the second book, I do actually give a clear-cut case uh, for that and uh, talk about yeah. species who were too near to a supernova. Do you want me to actually stop? Because you guys can't get in. We're in well, that, no, that's great. And, and you heard it, heard it here first. We're getting an exclusive uh, sneak peek into book two. But Pixie XR has something to add. So let's see uh, if Pixie, Yay, Pixie has read the book or if she's curious about it. How's it going, Pixie? Don't think she... Hey, Pixie. Hey, hey. Um, hey I've got yeah. a lot of questions, but I'm going to narrow it down. Um, so, okay, so we're you're talking about species, um, and then you brought up that object that came in, and uh, you know, and you have um, really good explanation for it. Here's my quandary about the unexplored. So it's estimated that the Earth has five yep. million species, flora and fauna, yet to be discovered. Yep. Um, and in my opinion, what I feel is that scientists can wrap their head around the environments of the top of the earth and under the ocean um, so that they can then easily extrapolate that there is living life and they can come to this conclusion. Um, right. What I find really hard for me to wrap my head around is not believing or or um not not necessarily believing or agreeing with me but like i just find it really unlikely that there isn't life outside i mean Absolutely. look at the earth yeah. and then you look at our galaxy alone it's just Absolutely. a just yeah. tiny little thing so <laughs> why do so many People, and I'm not saying you personally, why do so many people poo-poo this concept? Yeah. I mean... Well, look, let me, let me give you what I... I talk to quite a few astronomers and scientists, okay, you know, in the course of what I do. And I think I could probably say there's the general consensus, okay, is that purely for the statistics, there must be life elsewhere, not just on Earth. Okay? Um, and I'll come back to the to the other side of that in a minute. But um, so our Earth, our solar system, is one of probably we think around 400 billion, right? 400 billion, not million, stars in our galaxy. Right? We're getting really good data on that now through the Kepler mission and things like that. Um, and in fact, there's a mission called Kepler, which I mentioned a few years ago. It's aired at a little a side square between Cygnus and Lyra up in the um, in the sky, and they were just literally looking for the blinks of where planets go in front of stars. And about one percent of stars will do that randomly; they're oriented, and it's in our line of sight. And so they were finding, we think, that on average, every star, on average, has more than one planet around it. Okay, so got four hundred billion and more. Planets in our galaxy. Our galaxy is probably one of two trillion galaxies. That's two million million galaxies in the universe. So you've got two billion times 400 billion and more, right? That is so many planets. <laughs> you can just put the zeros on and then you can start saying, well, be maybe one in a thousand is habitable. 
know, maybe one in a thousand of those has developed um, uh, advanced life and so on. And you still end up, drop a few zeros off the end, you still end up with an enormous number of planets that statistically could have evolved life and maybe evolved intelligent life. Also, we certainly think that evolving life, you know, microbial life, is going to be given. When we look out into space, not necessarily on a planet, but even in between, you see clouds of material, carbon materials and that. And those contain the building blocks for life that we know of. They contain amino acids and sometimes very other complex um, molecules and that. So um, it just seems a no-brainer <laughs> that there is life out there. Now, the other side that I want to come to, which is perhaps I'm more sceptical, although <laughs> this goes against the book, but personally, I'm more sceptical. It's like, think about whether UFOs have come here. And I watch Ancient Aliens because it's great just seeing the places and the weird things that are around. They all seem to then suddenly get to it. And I think, oh, that's interesting. And they'll suddenly show a spaceship coming down with rockets on it and literally men. I'm much more sceptical about that side of it. Um, in fact, I, I suspect that there is life all around us. It probably is on Earth. It's probably not biological. It's probably nanomachines or something that we can't even see that we wouldn't recognize. That's much more likely, in my view. There's no proof of any of this. So you know, I'm not saying I believe that it is here or it has come. But it's possible. Um, but I think in order to be able to travel through space, biology is really crap at moving through space. Almost any biological material is going to be blasted to bits by cosmic rays, apart from the fact including, you know, that you have to go vast distances between one star and another. Well, even the nearest star to us is four light years away, from the Centauri, although we do know that there's a exoplanet around. Um, but uh, that's, that's at the speed of light. You can't go at the speed of light. You might, in physics, you might go something like the tenth the speed of light, but needs really advanced technology. Um, so it would take you 40 years to get there. But if you're a machine and could live a million years, if you're a machine, you can replace yourself, that wouldn't matter. So I suspect that it is Michael machine life is spread around the galaxy already. Probably here. Right. Yeah, so, um, but we don't know. Right. But that's the, the, it's the machine life I, I work on in the, in the book series. That's, that's right. Doesn't okay. mean there aren't biological things out there, but um, it's more likely to be. So I actually say about the cars actually traveling around, and I'll, I'll go into the UFO bit because, right, these cars are all cubes. They're 12 millimeters in size. Okay. And if they're going to travel around, they want to be traveling efficiently. So they collect together. If you take a cube, if you take eight cubes, right, put them together, two by two by two, you get another cube. And if you take eight of those your cubes, put those together, you get another cube. Okay. So I talk about these things compacting together, grouping together. So you're unifying the cubes. We're using uh, eight at a time, right? And it's a fractal arrangement. Fractals is where you repeat something on different scales. So they're unified fractal octets, which is UFOs. Never mind. I just play around. I like playing around with yeah. the other languages. So in yeah. my book, you have UFOs, but they're unified the same thing. Yeah, they got, got a different terminology. It's really great. So um, uh, it looks like the Nexus Nicole has something to add as well. We've got all our uh, wonderful people of color. This person is a very nice aqua blue yeah. color. It's a lovely shade, isn't it? Actually, <laughs> matches. I, I should warn you. Yeah. I'm, I'm a rabid soccer fan, so this is in favor of. Yeah, I'm a pretty rabid UFO sort of um, obsessed sort of person. And I, I like to tease Dave sometimes that I'm probably about the most woo fringe person you, you have a knowledge of in, in all space. And, and I'm just about as far out as you can get. But I was also <laughs> raised in an extremely materialist place. Um, and, you know, my father at Stanford Research Institute is where I spent a lot of my childhood. My father's there. Um, so I've seen both sides. And last night I saw a really interesting interview with um, Dr. Gary Nolan of, of Stanford, uh, who basically so he gave a response to um, the idea of a PhD dissertation that suggested that other planets um, 
depend on the same physics as we have. And he basically yeah. said, if somebody proposed to me that other existence, you know, other species have the same physics, I would fail them immediately. And and so I just, you know, I'm a bit of a fire starter and, and Dave's awesome. <laughs> I yeah, I'm I'm about one of the strangest people that you know, I like to tease people and, and poke little yeah, but, uh, well, it's a good thing. It's great, and I, I have some great. I, I think anything is possible, and and uh, being a contrarian uh, is fun. Also, yeah. you know, honoring what um, science is. I've grown up around it. My whole family is that. You know, I've got tons and tons of that in my 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 upbringing. So, I honor both sides, and I will always be the weird one. <laughs> yeah, go. It's pretty. We have some great chats about this, uh, Nico and I, in the past. But uh, one one thing I would say, I think really that we. I would really be worried if we thought there was another part of this universe that actually had different physics. I think that mm. when we look, we, we, James Webb, we recently we got spectrographs from another, it's more region of the sky, a galaxy is there, and we think we found one from spectroscopy, um, which is 13.4 billion years old. So this is just few hundred million years after the Big Bang, which is about 13.8. Um, but that spectroscopy, it looks exactly the same um, in things like the light that gets absorbed and the and the redshift we see in it because of the seeding galaxies due to the expansion of space. It, those rules seem to work anywhere. And we're looking at galaxies right across the other side of the universe. Um, they look, the, the physics behind it, I'm pretty sure, is universal. I think that will apply to life, but that doesn't stop life having an absolutely amazing variety of options and ways of working because it will life will depend on what the atmosphere is for its start and things like gravity. So if you had a much lower gravity on a planet, would possibly tend to have like you know longer legs and things because the same chemistry, the same physical structures of bone and you know, ways that uh, materials work would would actually allow you to have cooler animals and things like that. So I'm pretty sure that the physics of the universe is is more or less the same throughout. If you get to multiverses, then we can. No, that's what I was going to say. What about other dimension? <laughs> but um, yeah, right. people do. You know, say, oh, maybe it's got different physics. But well, I'm not sure about that. But anyway, but that still allows you almost any um, you know the variety of life we see on Earth um, is absolutely amazing. And as Pixie said, there's so much. Even deep down, miles down into the ground, you think there's probably more biological material under the ground than there is on the surface. Can it? Right. I mean, uh, this is not even mentioning the seas. You know, the seas are back as well. But deep down in the yeah. crust, um, finding yeah. evidence of mostly sort of bacterial. It's not like fish or something. But yeah, um, the bacteria, absolutely amazing. Things and, like that. And there's plenty of plenty of scope for all these sorts of things. You you you. Imagine in, um, uh, you know, in the science fiction films and that, you know, uh, uh, it's possible, right? Uh, so people sometimes people poo poo the, the, you know, the programs where the aliens come in and they're like they're talking in a, an American accent, you know, bipedal. <laughs> um, it might be that there is a slight statistical advantage in the sort of form we have. Okay, so. Compared to say all the four-legged animals that are walking around on the earth, okay, we're not sure about this, but we think that humans stood up, started standing up, and there's two things. If you're in Africa, right, you've got a lot of heat coming down on you. If you're on a, if you're more falls, you've got a lot of it on your back and on the back of your head and that. Our brains create uh, generate a lot of electricity of power. About twenty percent. Oh, Gordy, <laughs> and um, Dissipating that heat is something that limits the size of your brain. So as humans stood up, we were exposing a much smaller area of our body to the sun. And the other thing is we were moving our brains further away from the ground. It's just above the ground where you get the hottest temperatures. So standing up on, in two different ways was allowing our brains to get bigger. And they think probably it happened in that order. We were standing up. And then we were getting bigger brains as we went along, um, not the other way around. We didn't get big brains as small legged animals. Then, so, oh, that's good. I'll stand up. Um, so, I that love same, 
biological physics is probably going to work on maybe on other planets, you know. So yeah. may well be <laughs> because if you think about it, a lot of animals have four legs, stable in a way. Um, so that that standing up onto two legs might actually be relatively common way that intelligence is allowed to evolve yeah. simply because of the sort of the dynamics of it. But you could have, you know, hundred legged animals, squid things, octopuses yeah. and all sorts of things, you know. I mean octopi and that, they're fascinating actually. Brains well, distributed well, throughout their tentacles and that, you know, so it could be like that. You never know. But, um, I think I prefer the, yeah. the nanorobotic aliens to the bipedal, but I think Dr. Doc has something <laughs> to add here. So let's uh, let's see what Doc has to say. Dr. Doc, yeah. like the Dave, how's it going? You got here. Oh, yeah. No. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I was just, uh, what the, as well, say this is a cool spaceship. Like, uh, <laughs> be on a platform where you actually got some movement. Um. I've heard you say as far as like things, you know, as far as like traveling and uh, the speed of light and, you know, how long it takes this and how long it takes that. Really, to me, I, isn't it one thing faster than the speed of light is our thoughts. And, and with this simulation that we experience right now, even in this VR, Oculus and whatever you're using, yeah. isn't this sort of like um, traveling the thoughts? Well, I mean, you can go from one room to the other room, it's another planet. Uh, <laughs> you know, and time doesn't oh, yeah, exist I'm, there, right? The only thing that time time was made up by a person that wants to calculate and keep control over a certain, you know, ruling yeah. of what's happening and calculating, I guess, our demise as we decay on you know, as a vehicle. <laughs> yeah. So I just want I to mean, touch on that and see what you have to think say about that. Okay. Um, well, it's interesting the point you make about VR. VR is such a powerful medium, isn't it? We're, we're in a way we're discovering this. Nobody could really do all this stuff all about uh, ten years ago, twenty years ago, maybe. Um, and there's a lot of interesting psychology, human psychology, peering through VR and the way we have we build relationships and things like that in VR. It's um, it, it's a fascinating thing. There must be a few PhDs to, but it. I think if we ever are do start pushing out to the stars, uh, <laughs> uh, um, well, it would be first be in VR. We won't be pushing ourselves out there. Biology really isn't good for, for space travel. Maybe eventually, if you want to go and colonize another planet, something like that, maybe. Um, but it would take a long time you know, for our generation ships and things, unless we can make ourselves live a lot longer, possibly as part washing machines. But the first thing we would probably do is send out probes which would have you know, proper uh, 3D cameras and, and probably better than that. And then we would listen to the signals coming from the speed of light. So I suspect that would be very much the first thing. We, the first way of experiencing another world would be um, probably controlling things in VR. Maybe it might be on your program one day. You know, <laughs> yeah. And you're bringing in a, a camera that's um, that's actually on some of the planet or something like that. So uh, VR, I think, is going to be is it's going to be a really important tool in in us exploring worlds that uh, we can't do it at the moment because they going into space. I mean, they 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 manage it on the, the ISS. They they're up there for about six months at the most. They come back and their bones are starting to um, <laughs> rot. Basically, um, they're you know, in another poor state. They have to be exercising a lot. Now that we're starting to look, look at with Artemis at going back to the moon and building bases there, um, you've got a whole new range of problems for the body because in Earth's orbit, we have the Van Allen belts and the magnetosphere reflecting away a lot of the, the cosmic rays from, come from the sun. But once you get beyond Van Allen belt, uh, you're, you're basically you know, cannon fodder for cosmic rays. So, uh, the whole business about how you deal with uh, cosmic ray damage to the body, it's really going to be a whole new ballgame. So you need to be, uh, so if we go to the moon, we're going to have to cover up habitats. And, and the same with Mars as well. If um, Elon Musk, you know, gets us out there, hello Nico, um, we're going to be uh, really having to protect ourselves out in the vicinity of Mars because uh, it's just going to uh, destroy people over a, 
relatively short period if you do that sort of thing. So we have to go underground. So Mars um, collapsed um, volcanic uh, tubes and things like that, and we know they do exist on Mars um, and on the Moon as well. Uh, we're going to have to be <laughs> using those sorts of habitats to uh, protect ourselves from the sun. So um, you know, we think of think of the atmosphere being out in the open air as really benign and great lie on the sun, get a bit windy and what. But you go out in space, mate. You're you're <laughs> it's going to be destroying you. Um, in fact, the, the Apollo astronauts, they used to see, when they close their eyes on the way out to the moon, they used to um, see flashes, right? And this is actually cosmic ray particles passing through their eyeballs, okay, and causing flashes on their, uh, on their retinas and things like that. So it's a, it's a well-known uh, uh, feature. And uh, yeah, so you've got to be really careful like, going out there. You could go out, you know, surrounded by lead or something, but then... You've added all that extra mass to your spaceship. You're not going to go very far through that. Going into yeah. stellar, um, we have at least some protection from the magnetic field of the sun. Um, but once you get beyond what they call the magneto, the, um, the heliosphere, which is the sun's influence on the rest of the galaxy, uh, again, you're opened up to even more stuff flying out there, which you just think would be good. So biology, yeah. apart from the time, you know, you might, even the nearest star is going to be 40 light years away at 10 flight speed. Uh, go to any further. You're talking about centuries or millennia somewhere. Now, you might want to set out and do that and then have your kids and go a bit further and have your kids. And blah, blah, blah. But, <laughs> you know, is that going to work? So I think um, I'm very skeptical that we'll ever get to another star system as humans as we are. And it might be that we'll be feel as though we're doing it instead of. Star systems. I'm yeah, so we'll have to travel the inner space, is what you're saying, for the, the meantime. Well, this is it. Well, okay. If you invent, you know, if somebody comes up with warp drive and wormholes and things like that, maybe there's some other way. You know, um, yeah. uh, I, I always try to stick within the laws of physics. I don't yeah. use us and the light travel. I don't use time travel in my books. I, I just basically say it won't take you that long, so you need to be a machine to do it. Um, and work on maybe, the basis. So. Um, maybe CXR he has a uh, has a solution for our travel here. How, how's it going, Pixie? <laughs> oh, Nico. yes, this is this is such a great topic. Um, I love those yeah. topics, but I'm going to narrow it down to one. Okay, maybe one and a half questions. Um, one, I want to know: Are you interested in expanding at all in the future novels into? their dimensions and if there are so many restrictions in space to us as we know it in the physical why aren't people putting more energy into other dimensions like quantum quantum entanglement is amazing yeah. oh. uh, so why um not you personally but also pers you <laughs> personally are you interested in exploring that at all or is it the because you have a science background let me just say, okay, and this is in book two, I very much explore the use of quantum entanglement between the cars recording our lives and something called bar material, which is the other part. So if you do quantum entanglement, you have like two particles um, and they're entangled and then they can be separated by vast distances. And if you observe one, it affects the other one. Okay, So it's a sort of a way of communicating. You need to generate these quantum pairs and then you need to get one of them to another point. So, and there's a story which is, this is affecting Pixie. This is Pixie. Right? I'll show you the link, right? I talk about bar material. So there's cars, these little cubes, and the bar which is infused into the minds and bodies of whatever species is being backed up to these cars. It's not just humans. Okay. But in my story, the, the thing that carries the quantum entangled material from the cars, where it's generated, and infuses it into the bars on a species light years away. They're called psi cars. Okay? PSI cars. So I've got a story in there, and this is the one about Cabadina Volcaria relates to. Um, but these psi cars then come to the little cubes, come to Earth, and they're loaded up with this quantum entangled material, which they then try to get into the minds and bodies of 
infants. And that's the point at which you become connected for recording purposes to the cars. Okay, and as a story, um, car is made up of smaller half-sized cubes, and it can they can separate, and they're called chakra cubes, similar to chakras. Okay, so you can have eight of these out, two for eyes, and you've got a spine one. They match the chakra ping that um, you often hear about in um, hear about. Uh, anyway, can then project a body. They can project fields. I call them five fields, and they can make up the appearance if they wish, almost whatever they wish. So you've got um, entities that can generate. They can shape shift. They can generate whatever size um, body they want around them, and they're here for the reason of choosing bar material for cars. Anyway, I was writing this section, this this chapter, which is in book two. Okay. And this is the one with Cavadina Bolcaria and, and as she interacts with one of the sidecars. Anyway, I got to the, I was just getting to the end of the chapter. And one of our museum members did a story about the pixies of Dartmoor. And he was saying, oh, the stories of pixies, they are shapeshifters. Okay. <laughs> Amongst other things. And they, they're beautiful shapeshifters. And nobody ever sees them. They can, can hide away in all sorts of um, places. After that lecture, I went home and I wrote a story about pixies in the, in the context of my book. And it will actually be in the second book. It's a one page. I, all the time I was thinking about pixie. <laughs> and pixie was the first person in the world to actually read it. <laughs> oh, okay. So he's made it. He's actually read it. And yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's, I put, it's in our space. It's go my hating fire world from here. Um, oh, I've got cool. a, 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 an explanation of it. So, um, yeah, there you so go. Pixie made it into the way, annals of sci-fi history right there. Absolutely. Oh. She's, she's, she's cool. in it. Yeah. And if Azzy was here, I'd have been talking about Azzy because there's a story. Yeah, right, story, right, right. Which, um, yeah, uh, talks about her as well. Um, so, yeah. yeah it looks like Nexus, Nicole, Nexus Nicole has something to add as well. How's it going, Nexus? Okay. Hey, so, um, actually, thank you, all your, your thoughts. Yeah. Um, the one question that I see a lot in um, so-called ufology or ufology circles. Um, you know, a lot of people in, in um, government, DC, you know, federal as well as um, private aerospace yeah. circles, we've talked about the concept of consciousness. So I guess I would just present what's often called the C word for you. <laughs> well, yeah, so where does consciousness All topic. come from? Yeah, it's a brilliant topic. Um, and of all the things, all right, when you start talking about consciousness, you need a certain clarity on certain terms, because we have things like um, intelligence, sentience, self-awareness, and conscience. So I think we can explain the others. I mean, you can have intelligent computers, right? Intelligence is about where you act being relevant to your goal. It's goal solving and things like that. You can have, in a way, you can have sentience. Sentience is about being aware of your environment. You can have self-awareness in machines because you can program a machine to know its relation to the world. Okay, and if you talk to Alexa and that, they'll say and things like that. So it's a form of self-awareness. But I reserve the ultimate one for con as consciousness because we don't really have. that we're able to think, well, we're actually here. We feel as though we're in an environment. They embodies all those other things we have in intelligence as well. But this consciousness business, um, ooh, Nicole's gone. Uh, she, nah, her is, hands are um, here. Her hands are here, and now she's gone. She's sort of <laughs> beating in and out of consciousness here. Yeah, she's there already she gone is. into another dimension. Here she comes. Exactly. <laughs> That's all right, Nicole. We were just... So it is amazing. Now, again, I do actually imply that this connection with bar material, it's, um, it's actually um, an emergent property, consciousness, of being entangled with one of these things. That mm. So you, so you subscribe to the idea that it may be a quantum uh, element to consciousness? Do you prescribe, subscribe to that idea, uh, possibly? Possibly. It's, I mean, the great thing is that all quantum stuff, it's so crazy that it cover, could cover right. almost anything. Um, and I think people latch onto it because it is really interesting. Um, 
maybe there's stuff beyond quantum stuff that we don't know which is where consciousness is coming from. Um, yeah. Consciousness is also intimately bound with memory. Um, and, uh, you know, are we, people debate, even are we conscious or are we just remembering being conscious a few milliseconds ago because we've got a load of memories mm. that we can make sense of? It's a tricky thing. And I don't know the answer. Mm. I mean, we don't know yeah. what consciousness is. Um, we we okay. can guess on things like, well, you know what, intelligence, self and those other things. Consciousness itself, what I would consider the proper consciousness. Just, uh, I kinda, you don't really have kind of ties back. And it ties back to knock the doc's question before about is your thoughts uh, traveling faster than the speed yeah. of light? And if they're quantum and there's an entanglement element, then possibly yeah. it, it, we ca it can travel more quickly than light because it's going in yeah. a different uh, manner. Yeah. Yes. I do have one single page in the second book. Mm -hmm. I put what I think is a reasonable explanation of how quantum entanglement works. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it, it was one of those weird days when I had to deal with something because I've been talking about it. And I sat down and just got into the sort of flow state. And I just wrote this out. And I'd not thought of it before. It just came out, went down on the page. Really weird. But it's a, a really interesting page. I might submit it for a PhD one day. It involves lower dimensions. We're always talking about higher dimensions. Mm. Um, and when physicists talk about higher dimensions, they talk about them usually being curled up very small, um, with small space. Um, uh, um, why not have maybe may that we are in a universe which is one of these little rolled up dimensions relative to a lower dimension? So there may be lower dimensions. And if you have a speed of light, what we think is speed of light in our universe, but there is a lower dimension, we met the, the speed of light or whatever information is lower dimension may be infinitely faster because it's relative to a far faster, far larger set of dimensions. And it might be that quantum entanglement is communication through connection between particles through a lower dimension. Mm -hmm. um, because that lower dimension would have speed of light or speed of information, which is faster. That may explain how these effects are happening faster than light. It's just a page, and I wrote it, and I sat down, and it all came out. Um, I'd love to read it to you one day, but uh, I can't. Um, yeah, it's in the second book. So it's like, really can't, can't, can't wait to get tangled. to the. Yeah, so I'm like, I can't, can't wait to get to book two here. So I guess that, uh, you know, begs the question when are we going to read book two, Haley and Dave? Yeah, okay. when are we going to get it? Yeah. It took 13 years okay. to get book one. So we're hoping we're going to be alive yeah, for book two. <laughs> well, the annoying thing, I've been telling, I've, um, I've been putting it on the website that it's going to be in 2022. <laughs> It'll probably be next year. I'm actually. Um, Two thirds of the way, I, I tried to write about 300 pages in a book. Okay, I've got 200 of the second book written. Um, so I need a, I've got a couple more good stories to put in there. Um, and then hopefully that's going to be out. The cover, um, my son is doing the cover for the second book as he did the first book. Um, I don't know if you've got any of the pictures that I sent you a gift you know, but, um, of the book. But if you come to my Haley and Gaia world, anyone wants to come and have a look, I think most of you that I know here have. But um, I've got the book cover there and that, uh, which my son did. Anyway, the second book, the front cover is um, the goddess Isis, the Egyptian mm -hmm. goddess Isis. Of course, in my story, she has to be an eon, uh, which explains how she's got wings. And and uh, I show talk about Osiris. There's a wonderful story in Egyptian mythology about uh, Isis and Osiris, her husband and brother, um, and Seth um, there. Very jealous uh, brother as well, and there's a story there which um, is is really deep in Egyptian mythology, and I I, I actually cover that in, in a sci-fi way, and um, and of course their offspring is well, I'm using those things, and you can get the imagery from that onto the front of my uh, cover of my book, and I've got the uh, the car as an orb of Osiris in between the bull horns of Isis. And that's the way she's shown in Egyptian mythology. She's shown with a pair of bull horns and a, and a sphere. In my story, it fits perfectly that she's got Cyrus after he's been killed by Seth, resurrected by her, coming back and helping the son in the fight against Seth. And then at the end, he joins her because he's a, he's a dead ex. It's so sad. <laughs> actually see him project himself as a body. So cars can project themselves as bodies based on the, the memories of the beings that they have 
called it hives of, so it can look like all the previous ones. And one other point that comes up is um, if you you when you die, okay, so you're connected to a car, you die. That car connects through bio infusion to another being, okay, probably the same species, but you can actually momentarily get a little crossover the data between the two, which is how when you're born sometimes you can have a few memories from another person that was connected to that. Mm. That's the whole reincarnation business, you know, which is a yeah. dealt with that yeah. stuff as well. I like sort of taking concepts from mythology, weaving yeah. them into the science fiction story in a way which is plausible. I'm not saying any of it's right, it's fiction, but it's a way that's self-consistent at least, you know, which is what I want to see based on some real science. So, um, yeah. it's the approach well, I take. It. It's a true, it's a true masterclass in world building. It's so uh, elaborate and detailed. It has a lot of scientific backing, and I like how you try to connect it. Also, if anyone out there listening or watching on YouTube is a fan of Neil Stevenson, like seventies, like all that massive world building yeah, that takes yeah. place over thousands or billions of years, um, and you have, it's so clear that you have a scientific background that is able to instill into these pages. But kind of, it's like if you Prometheus also. Scott from sort of the uh, Earth of Life being an alien design, and to see Clark's 2001, yes, where right. we've right. got yeah. the machine, the obelisks that are uh, <laughs> the monoliths that are hiding it, uh, around the world, and okay, all that stuff do a, will be a two-minute story about, about where the term Hadean comes from. I do this, you've got to finish, but where Hadean comes yeah. from, okay? All right, when I um, was 16, my mum took me to see 2001, this sort of thing. Hmm. Um, up until that point, I'd wanted to be an airline pilot. When I came at that film, I said, that's it, man. How in the thing? I want to do software, do computer science. Mm. Okay. And a few years later, I set up my own limited company to do contract work through. I wanted the initials to be HAL. So I've been working through high-level algorithms for 40 years. Okay, HAL. Mm. Now, back in 1997, when wanted to start setting up websites i wanted a domain name and pal.com is actually hindustan airlines so i couldn't have that mm. so what i did was added internet so h-a-l oh. internet i-e-n alien it was free i grabbed all the aliens i've got and i can have com.org cn for china I grabbed them all and i used the word alien and it's actually a registered trademark now in this country um so that's where oh. alien comes from so uh, right. it actually goes back right. to 2001. And I, if you remember on the introductory pages, I actually credit Arthur C. Clarke for uh, the film 2001 and how. Um, you know, yeah, so it is awesome. one of my founding ideas. Of, um, oh. I'm it's one of my favorite films. Me too. I'm always in awe that uh, after all the time that has passed, that was made in the 60s, and that it's now, you know, it's 60 years ago, and still, I think, when physicists talk Amazing. about things, they say that that is the most realistic way that uh, intelligent life will reach us, which is kind of what you're saying, which is it's going to be a machine. Yes. Yes. They have been buried here thousands of I years have, ago, and we just haven't found it yet. I have black monoliths in the story. They have to be cubes in mind, but uh, they can yes. arrange themselves as a... Always right. in later in later um, books actually as well. And so cosmic cubes, I believe. Big influence. Eight eight yeah. seed cubes. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, um, how can people get in touch with you um, so that they can get in uh, touch with this book or or maybe debate with okay. you the quantum consciousness that we are sharing <laughs> at Lightspeed? <laughs> well, okay. Obviously, I'm happy to talk to people in outspace. So the people here or who want to come into outspace, you know, welcome to come. I'm, I'm always really happy to talk to people. Um, or I can do like as he did on Monday, um, you know, do Instagram videos and things, and really happy to bring in stuff in, which he's got a lot of knowledge in that area as well. Um, the, the, the only word you have to remember is Halion. So you can be anything at Halion dot almost anything dot net um, will come to me email wise. Um, and if you go to Halion dot com, Halion dot net on the web, um, they're both for the same thing. Um, you can you can go to the Halion book via the um, there's a link on there and that takes you to a a sub website which just gives you pictures and that to do with the first book. Obviously, it's the first mm -hmm. one out, so I, I did that one. But on the right hand side of that page, you can also download um, or listen to or view 
first chapter of Halian Ascent, which is the second. And as I get to writing later books, I'll be adding them all into that structure. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's probably the best way. So, you know, you can always email me or I like to actually interact with people. I sometimes go away with somebody and we, we have a talk about something or other. And uh, sometimes it's science and sometimes it's uh, more human things sure. of life. But um, yeah, <laughs> I, I love all that interaction. Yeah. And thank you for inviting oh. me on here as well. It's been great fun. Absolutely. Well, well, thank you. Thank you for coming. And uh, I really do uh, hope that people check out this book. Obviously, you've got a wealth of knowledge. We really just, I, we could have been on here for 10 hours with you. We could have a, a, you know, a Joe Rogan episode of five hours yeah, long. And, and uh, we'll have to have you come back and do another one. But um, I really appreciate Absolutely, being yeah. here. Yeah, and um, thank you, everybody, for teleporting in. Whether you're with us in virtual reality, like these people, Nico, who's been on this stage before, and Pixar, oh, Nico's Nico solar system, and that, they're absolutely amazing. AI, absolutely. shader worlds, and that absolutely amazing. I mean, all the people absolutely. like Nico who do amazing stuff. That's right. Um, yeah, and uh, and and remember um, to join us next week for our episode of the uh, the last episode of the year. Should say with World Builder Lightyear. Uh, so that's for our world builders of all space. I think that's number 17. So we've got a lot of uh, database for building of the best world builders uh, in all space. And of course, Nico is definitely one of those who was on our Shushu and Nico episode. So until yes, then, stay plugged, my friends.